Howdy, everyone. What an intro. Why do intro. I find that funny, Julia? I know. <laughs> wow. It's a, it's a work in progress. It's be yeah. all Beverly's doing now. She's doing a great job on it. So. Yay, I love it. Welcome, everyone. Uh, you're watching Narrative Dissonance here on Unsafe Space. This is a show where we question the mainstream narrative. Not that there's anything to question. Obviously, good, smart, conscientious citizens wouldn't question anything, but we suck. So we question the mainstream narrative. Um, what else? We're streaming on YouTube. No, we're not on Utreon right now. We're on Rumble, Odyssey, YouTube. I don't know. Go check us out in those places. We have a, our the ghost of unsafe spaces back on Twitter, underscore unsafe space. You can follow us there. Um. Oh, Juliet, I've been. I'm like now. I I I can say I've read enough of Slaughterhouse Five that I like. I like it. Okay. It's I'm in and uh. Yeah, our next book club is August is uh, sorry October thirtieth, mm -hmm. and Juliet, you are our host. I well, am. We're gonna do two p.m. Eastern. Two p.m. Um, Eastern. Okay, so eleven a.m. Pacific. Yes. All righty. Yes, and I'm very excited. I mean, I don't know if there's just something wrong with me, but I find the book slightly hilarious. <laughs> it's definitely. Oh, it humor. is hilarious. Okay, no, <laughs> it's totally hilarious. Uh, right. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and and it's all dark humor. Very dark, yes. All the hilarity is dark. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, given the subject matter. But anyway, what else, any other housekeeping things we need to say before we bring on our guest? Julia? I don't think so. No? All right. Well, then, in that case, welcome everyone in chat. Um, today, for our alternative media guest, we have Leonidas Johnson. Leonidas is a political, cultural commentator and host of the podcast Informed Dissent. He's also a speech-language pathologist as well as a theater and film actor. By the way, he played Donkey in Shrek recently, which I'm, I want to ask him about. He's a writer, director, and composer. He is known for his common-sense approach to a variety of hot-button topics, including race, gender, economics, politics, and the general role of government in our society, encouraging others to embrace the importance of individual liberty to do their own research. So he's probably been banned from YouTube. And challenge the narrative. <laughs> so he's perfect for the show. You can follow him at Informed Descent, which is a podcast you can find on Apple, Spotify, everywhere else. Follow him on Twitter at Leonidas Johnson, where his pronouns are leave me alone, best pronouns ever. And his website is leonidasjohnson.com. Welcome. <laughs> I appreciate it, man. I appreciate your uh, respect of my pronouns that I feel yeah. affirmed. I do. Good. I feel affirmed. Yes. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> they are, uh, I think they, they are, like, they're definitely among the top, I mean, they might be the top, they're, like, among the top few sets of pronouns I've ever heard. Uh, they're, they're a good set. They're, they're a solid set of pronouns. Um, I, did, I knew a high school kid who, when his teacher asked him, uh, his pronouns were Dragon Lord and something else, I forget. That was early on in the process, and that was good, just for shock value, but leave me alone. That's like my political philosophy, all in your pronouns. So, well, my mine too. I'm a libertarian, and we talked about that last time I was on the show. That yeah, uh, you know, leave me alone. That's 
basically my life mantra, definitely when it comes to politics and government. So yeah, yes. it's fitting. Mm-hmm. Well, um, thanks for thanks for joining us. Uh, for sure, I I feel like I need to ask you about Shrek because I was intrigued by the fact that you played Donkey. <laughs> I don't know why that. I don't know why it's so funny to me. I can't imagine you in Shrek. I think is the thing, and then playing Donkey is just extra funny. Uh, yeah. what was that all about? <laughs> what was that all about? Dude, yeah. Well, I mean, I've been, I've been acting, yeah, I've been acting for a while, and uh, you know, I, this is actually the second time that I played Donkey. I've done it before, and, <laughs> so, but I mean, it's, it's actually one of my favorite roles, man. Like, I love that role. I love it. Shrek the Musical is a really good musical. I'm not sure, sure. how well, how I much you are in the musicals, but it's a really good musical. Uh, good songs, good story. Obviously, obviously, super funny. And the character Donkey is, you know, it's it's already a comedy, and Donkey is just a ridiculous comedic character, and that's <laughs> yeah. so it's my favorite. It's my favorite thing to do: just go out there and just act ridiculous and try to Fair try enough. to approximate try to approximate Eddie Murphy's Donkeyism while while also giving it my own little flair. But yeah, sure, it was a lot yeah. of fun, man. It sounds it sounds fun. Um, <laughs> next time I'm in Ohio, I will uh, see if I can <laughs> yeah. find a production of you as Donkey. So for I sure, go, I, <laughs> I will play Donkey again just for you. Just one more time. Thank you. Just, That's very. Just I, you fun. know what? I appreciate it. It's uh, <laughs> it, it won't go unnoticed. Um. So, uh, <laughs> I Shrek is a good movie. I liked the movie. I'm sure yeah. it's a good musical. Um, it is. It is. Funny musicals are the best. Music. I'm not a huge musical fan, but like Avenue Q was awesome, and yep. I watched um. What's the one? What's the one I watched in New York uh, with? Oh, the um, Book of Mormon was good. Mm-hmm. Like funny musicals are good. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm not really into the Andrew Lloyd Webber stuff, but funny ones are. Um, I can get behind those. So you know, it's funny. I I like obviously I like the comedy, but I also like the dark stuff. I like the Draculas and the Jekyll and Hyde's and mm-hmm. Miss, oh, Miss yeah. Saigon's. I I like the tragic. Sure, Chicago was good of, yeah. actually. I thought. Um, as a musical, which is dark. Uh, yeah, it, it has kind of both. It's kind of it's kind of dark and uh-huh. comedic. It's that dark comedy and dark humor. Right, I like that. Stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we were talking about that before the show. Yeah. <laughs> the dark yeah. Um. Yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah. My ex-wife dragged me to Cats, and that was horrible. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Was, I don't know about that one. Have you seen the yeah. movie version? The film version? I. No, I, and uh, that seems like you. I, it's like taking the worst thing ever and figuring out how to corrupt it to make it worse. I don't. I don't know what the. It's. It, it might be an artistic challenge. Like, could this be worse? Yeah, right. I don't know. Can Let's hire it? a director. Let's see and what make happens. a movie out of it. Let's do a so screenplay. You know, you know how bad Cats is, right? So let's see what we can do. Let's yeah. Make it even more awful. Let's make it awful. Let's. <laughs> You know, we'll let's, get a committee of people to write a screenplay, and we'll use CGI. Yes, yeah, perfect, <laughs> amazing. I don't know if it was a committee. I just assume. Um, <laughs> it seems like what they would do. <laughs> All right, we're supposed to be serious. So uh, let's let's get serious. No, I don't, I don't. Well, you know what? I can't stay completely serious when we are in clown world. So. Um, yeah. Sometimes you just have to laugh because otherwise you might turn homicidal. Um, so I know there's a couple stories that you brought up, but I'm just gonna I'll, I'll open with with our our main question, which is what's the most important story 
about which mainstream media has been misleading people recently. What do you think? Yeah, so I thought about it a little bit, and I a article came across my timeline from the New York Times from the infamous Charles Blow about uh, the, <laughs> is he infamous? <laughs> the, the infamous Charles Blow. Uh, <laughs> just the, some of the stuff I've read from There's him. There's a joke in there, but I'm not gonna. <laughs> It kind of sets itself up, but we'll leave it alone. Yeah. Um, but, he, but he was commenting on on what was going on out in California, which, I mean, if you're in California out on the West Coast, I'm, I'm sure you've heard about it. The Nuri Martinez scandal with the L.A. City Council, mm. where she was caught on tape talking about uh, making disparaging remarks about different groups of people. Um, Charles Blow was particularly focused on uh, her disparaging bar- remarks toward black people. Uh, she had said something about uh, one of this form, one of her fellow council members has a kid who is black, and he was acting like a monkey. <laughs> like she needs, I, so I actually I have a question about up, that one. Like, outrageous, but wait, yeah, wait, wait. I, have a, I have a question. Why is it? I I really don't understand. I mean, I know that yeah. that people are doing this intentionally, but it's like any any reference to primates is suddenly like automatically racist about black people. If I were black and I don't, I can't speak for you, but if I were black, I would be really insulted by the fact that any insult that happens to reference primates is right. an assumption that it's a racist insult. It's like what he's just being a monkey. Like that's like, we talk about kids like obnoxious kids who are, you know, behaving in an unwieldy fashion or are obstreperous in some way or whatever. They're, you call them yep. monkeys sometimes. Why is that? Or why? And she did say other stuff that I think is obviously racist. But why was yeah. that one just like immediately like, oh, clearly she's talking about his race? Yeah, and I was going to say that that you know. Oh, okay. I I I, <laughs> I, I was going to say that exact thing that <laughs> it, it makes no sense to just jump to racism just because she said the kid was acting like a monkey. I mean, it's a common thing, like you said, that when you're talking about children who are acting wild and out of control. Uh, and I, I refer to my kids as monkeys all the time because they're always climbing on stuff and acting crazy. Racist. A bunch of little monkeys. I know. So I'm definitely, <laughs> that's my internalized white supremacy coming out. So just don't, <laughs> don't worry about that. But, <laughs> but you know, put it in the context of all her other remarks, she was being uh, pretty disparaging toward yes. multiple different groups. Um, mm-hmm. That particular remark, I don't know about, but she was saying some pretty disparaging stuff. She was talking about like indigenous Mexican immigrants and Jews and Armenians, a bunch of different people she had bad stuff to say about. But anyway, back to Charles Blow in his article. He was basically saying that as the country gets more racially diverse and as uh, becomes less and less white, essentially, then white supremacy is going to be replaced by something he called light supremacy, which, mm. which is basically people with lighter color skin discriminating against black people. Uh, so Latinos, I guess, or Latinas in, in her case would basically the take the role of white supremacy. Let, I'm sorry. Excuse me. Lat, Latinx. Latin, <laughs> like, how do you even pronounce that? I can't. <laughs> Nobody Latinx. knows. I don't know. Isn't, 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 ridiculous. isn't X not even pronounced X? Isn't, Isn't it like not? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a guttural <laughs> German thing. I don't know. I don't know what it is. <laughs> I feel yeah. I feel oppressed just by that that guttural sound. Mm. But yeah, it's like, whatever you want to use, whatever term. But they're going to take the, over the white supremacy, 
And so white supremacy never goes away. It's just always going to be black people at the bottom. And it's his point that even though America is becoming less less uh, or less white race, more racially diverse then white supremacy will continue to persist. And it's just it's one of those things you're just completely wrapped up in race and you see everything through this victimized racial lens. And so, you know, somebody who is non-white makes disparaging marks about other racial groups, which she made disparaging marks about white people too. Nobody seems to care about that. That's not well that you're supposed to do that. You're allowed. That's, that's permitted, but yeah. So like (laughs) encouraged. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But you, you have somebody who's non-white that makes disparaging marks about another racial group. And somehow that's indicative of white supremacy. You have a, you have a black person that, that goes and attacks an Asian American out in San Francisco and somehow that's indicative of white supremacy. So it, it's incredible. Everything revolves around white supremacy, whether white people are, in, are involved or not. It's it's madness. It's so. that powerful. It's that powerful. Yeah. There's like a handful of guys in Kentucky who are actual Nazis. <laughs> and they are really just magically powerful. Everything that, everything that happens, even in San Francisco, is... You know, it, <laughs> You you joke about it, but it would have to be that way, right? Mm-hmm. Like it would ha- it would have to be that. It would. I have didn't to mean be- to pick on Kentucky, by the way. <laughs> For those of you who might be from Kentucky, I'm just you know. Well, I mean, Kentucky, yeah. but I mean, it would have to be. It would it, like white supremacy has to be such a powerful force that it can control everybody's behavior <laughs> and. You know, right. so white people are responsible for everything and non-white people, well, they can't help it. It's just the system of white supremacy acting on them and, and they right. internalize the whiteness. So now they're white adjacent and they're disparaging black people because that's what white supremacy does. Right. Yeah. Yeah. White adjacent. a new my wife is um, native Chinese and uh, like over the course of our relationship, I've seen like this shift in culture where uh Chinese like kind of felt like they were outside. They didn't really care her, like her, her culture or like her, her friend group that were Chinese. They didn't really care about, you know, any of the racist stuff going on. Cause they kind of felt like they were on the sidelines watching what was yeah. going on in America. But then over the past several years, they started to be lumped in with like white adjacent. And now they're like, what the hell? It's very context specific, right? It's very yeah. context specific because they're only white adjacent when they're applying to Harvard. But if, right. <laughs> right. Yeah. But if they get attacked in the street, all of a sudden it's oh stop Asian hate, guys. Yes, yeah, no, they do that. do that. They're they're very good at that. <laughs> because they're very uh they're they're just out of the culture. They have none of uh, they have none of the the guilt that the white folks seem to have about everything. Like they don't care. So if you're like yeah. you're an Asian supremacist, they'd be like, yeah, right. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> so they have none of that. <laughs> but they also like they don't really care about exploiting what's going on. So like, oh, like I can say Asian hate and like that'll help me somehow. Like, sure, I'll hold up a sign and protest Asian hate. Um, yeah. Anyway, yeah. so. I have a question about this Martinez thing and the whole LA thing for you. What how, yeah. what was your reaction to? I mean, we, we can talk about Charles Blow's. I can't believe I'm, that's his name. We're gonna talk. We can I talk about Charles Blow's it. article, <laughs> but I also yeah. just want to talk about underlying. Like, what's the? What was your reaction to her? Because I did you listen to her audio? I did. I did. Um, and you know, it's one of those things where you spend so much time because what's interesting about her and Charles Blow mentioned this in his article actually, but that she supported the black lives matter protests and riots and 
all of that stuff in 2020. She supported defunding police and all of that stuff. So she's been on the progressive side of things publicly uh, this entire time. So one of the things that I find interesting is these people continually push this narrative of division, of racial division, uh, gender division, whatever. And they're constantly dividing people in these two into these intersectional groups and then saying that you're an oppressor, you're a victim, whatever. And this narrative is constantly perpetuated by them. Uh-huh. And then they act surprised when all of a sudden you have these groups vying for a position on the top of the hierarchy and saying that, well, no, no, we're the most oppressed. And what she was what she was basically doing was she was she was putting the the Latinx group. <laughs> I can't even say it with a straight face. <laughs> That's okay. I think most actual Hispanics hate yeah. it. Oh, so. they do. I, I, they do. Absolutely, yeah. they do. Uh-huh. But they, she's putting the, the Latino group at the top of that oppression, oppression hierarchy and everybody else on the bottom. And saying that, you know, like when you do that, you're basically saying that it's a zero-sum game. And if we don't get what we want as a group or if we feel victimized as a group, then everybody else that's not in our group is the oppressor. Uh-huh. And so you're going to have hostility toward other outgroups. Even if you on the outside, you're pushing for unity or equity or, or whatever the, the catch-all terms are. But the ultimate outcome is going to be enmity between the groups because there's those dividing lines. And that's, that's the only way it's going to be. So I do find that interesting that, you know, we say that this thing sort of thing happens mostly. You see it happen with progressives. They have that infighting and they, they, they start to splinter. And now we have uh, on the gender end, we have a flag that, you know, continues to keep adding things because people feel like the broader category doesn't represent them properly. And so they continue to fight and say that, oh, like you're actually being exclusive to my identity because you're not including this, you know, I don't know, hetero flexible or whatever, <laughs> whatever the category is. I don't even have one for that. That's, I mean, but it, you see what I mean? It's like it, it, they, they continually just splinter and they continue to promote the oppression Olympics. And then they get surprised when, when people participate. So I'm looking it up. There's a, is there a color for hetero flexibility? Let's look. I guarantee there's got to be. There has uh, to be. Well, <laughs> It's weird because uh, there's a I don't know this looks like a maroon but also there's a purplish and a blue uh, you know what maybe it's a gradient that would make sense a gradient um, <laughs> it's well, a flexi- flexible color when you let yeah. everybody make up words and then like pick a flag for them you're gonna have you're gonna end up with more than one flag yeah per new group yeah although for sure. I, <laughs> Am I going to be the one to point out that the inevitable conclusion of this is a white flag because all the colors will be in it and like that's it the has end? To like- be. <laughs> it has to be. You know, I've made the point that eventually you get to a point where it's you, you actually get to individualism. Like if you continue to splinter and you continue to. I don't think uh, that's true, but I but I've heard that point. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, uh, it's not true in the sense that they, you know, it's inherently. Well, they won't get there. They, they won't get there exactly. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, that's how it's. <laughs> <laughs> but if it continued along this path, logically, that's where it would have to go. You know, it'd have right. to end with like the individual, and they. So right. they're so close. They're so close to getting it, but you know, but one of the things go to back back to uh, the 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 Charles Blow thing. 
Mm. And one <laughs> one of the things he said is a reference to Charles Flo. <laughs> <laughs> My nose is itching, man. <laughs> <laughs> How do you end the podcast here? Not, <laughs> All that white supremacy is going right up its nose. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Put everything in a line. Okay. Um, <laughs> racism uh, racism is perpetuated by those who benefit from it. That's a quote from his article. Mm. And I actually agree with that. That's 100%. true. I think yeah. he's absolutely yeah. spot on. But not but when, how he meant it. Not while he meant it. Not, what, yeah. not how he meant it. What he, what he fails to recognize is that he's talking about himself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he doesn't realize that he's the one that's perpetuating this racial identity obsession and encouraging the identity politics and thus encouraging racism and the oppression Olympics and the reason why Nuri Martinez is saying this kind of stuff. So, yeah, it's it's... It's, it's one of those things. He's, they're so close to getting it, but yet so far away. I mean, for people who aren't familiar with what's going on, there she's she's in a conversation in these tapes, at least for part of them. She's in a conversation about redistricting. Yeah. Right. So this is like they're literally trying to draw lines up for who, basically who gets power on the city council. And oh. I don't I don't know. I listening in on that it just seemed like this inevitable it just seemed inevitable it was like well of course this is how they talk because everything their entire philosophy everything about them is is centered on paying attention to what racial group you're a part of and battle between racial groups so of course they talk like wh- – why would they not talk like this? The only people who don't talk like that are people who are individualists who yeah. like – that's not how – they don't they don't say things like, well, the blacks do this and the light-skinned Latinos do that and the, <laughs> da, 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 the, the darkies do – like she used language that was like horrible, right? right. Like, But right. that's how she spoke about people because that's how – that's how the Democrat – not, it's not just the Democrats, but that's how the progressives – that's how they view the world. Of course, mm-hmm. like I, I was almost shocked that anyone was shocked by this. Like, oh, yeah. how, how could you be racist? Like, what are you, what are you talking about? Of course, she's racist. <laughs> like, this is, this is what it, she does for a living. Right, and you're exactly right. It's it's the inevitable outcome of such an ideology. When you fracture everybody into racial groups, I mean, that's that's just the way it's going to be. And <clears throat> I mean, like we like we said when it's whether it's intersectionality or or race or gender whatever the terminology is everybody has their in group and they're going to have that animosity and enmity toward the out group because they sure. view the world through those collectivist notions and this idea that in order for me to gain i have to take from someone else in order for if i lose something that means somebody else took something from me and it's that zero sum trade off so if if I'm going to be a representative for the Latino community, then I have to have a sense of priority for the Latino community, which means I need to elevate myself and the Latino community above everybody else, above the black community, above, above the white community, above the indigenous Mexican <laughs> immigrant community. Right. <laughs> right. <I'm> <laughs> whoever, Elizabeth whoever, Warren. all the people that she, yeah, I love Elizabeth Warren. But I, I have to elevate myself and, and my constituents above everybody else. Um, 
at least the, my constituents who fit that racial profile above everybody else. And then that's going to drive hostility. It's going to drive enmity. And that's just the natural occurrence. So yeah, you're right. It's surprising that people would be surprised about something like that because it's the natural outcome. And it's something that we warn about all the time. We warn about it yeah. all the time. Like this, if we continue to obsess about race and continue to obsess about these sort of things, then the only outcome can be group enmity and racism. That's mm-hmm. the only possible outcome to obsessing about racial identity. You drive racism and, you know, they just they don't see it. Yeah. Or they do and they deep down they they are just racist and they want to be. Like, I wonder Fair. sometimes if like, you know, we have this conception of the truly racist people historically being obviously like groups like the KKK or the Nazis sure. or whatever, like truly racist, racist groups and racist people. And I sometimes wonder like, well, maybe they didn't die out. Maybe they just like morphed into like, or those ideas like, oh, they just, now it's just a different kind of racism. And maybe it's not the same people necessarily, uh, but it's just a, now it's under the banner of progressivism and now they're racist. They figure out a way to be racist. Um, well, and, and I think it's driven by their own. They are probably recognize themselves as racist. So they project that onto everyone else. And they're like, well, I treat, I treat people differently. If they're from a different part of Latin America than I am, therefore everyone treats people differently, like mm-hmm. based right. on where it's like, well, that's well, project- yeah. No, I, I think you're right. I think you're on to something there. And then I think about a quote from Ayn Rand where she says that racism is nothing more than a crude form of collectivism. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people with these collectivist notions where they think that the group is more important than the individual. And then you add the idea of virtue signaling and, and, and all of that onto it and make everything a racial element we're trying to admit you know make amends for the past or, or whatever it is that they feel like they're they're trying to do when you add that into a collectivist framework then then yeah i mean they, those those because you think about the kkk like that was a collectivist organization it, it, white supremacy in itself is a collectivist ideology mm-hmm. so yeah, it's so it, it's that it's erasing the individual for the sake of the group. So you, I can look at you and I can say that, okay, I, I I see you as a person, but I'm going to judge you based on the group that you belong to. And that's what the KKK did. That's, that's what it was all about. And we see that now with progressivism, they just put on this moral sort of cloak to say that, well, no, 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 we have it right this time. We are the morally superior, which the KKK also thought they were morally superior. But it's, it's that same thing where they think that they're morally justified um, to treat people based on their group identity rather than individual, uh, individual merit. And so I think you're right. I think it's the same thing, just repackaged in a different way, um, which is funny. I talk about critical race theory being repackaged as Marx or repackaged form of Marxism. Uh-huh. And it's that same kind of uh, same kind of feeling, that same kind of ideology where you're you're taking old ideas and basically repackaging them to make them fit your moral framework or whatever you think a moral framework should be. Uh-huh. And so but it's the same thing. It's it's just a different different package. It's like, oh, this is medicine, even though it's still poison. <laughs> Yeah, it's almost like the only thing that they think was wrong with the clan was that they had the hierarchy backwards, but everything else was correct. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. <laughs> like, well, so you know, that's not the problem with them fundamentally. Like, it's the fact that they divided people into groups. Like, it's right. not the hierarchy. <laughs> it's the division. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, I I, th I think that's true too because um, I talk about critical race theory pretty frequently, and I've talked to people who adhere to this ideology, and about what needs to happen in order for them to be happy. Like, what what needs to happen in society for you to feel like you've accomplished your goal, and they don't really give you a straight answer. Like they don't really want the problems to go away. They don't want racial reconciliation. They, they don't want to move into a post-racial uh, society where people are colorblind and treat everybody based on the content of character rather than color of skin. They don't want that. They want to, like you said, they want to flip the hierarchy and they want to take control of the levers of power and uh, basically enact vengeance. Uh -huh. <laughs> basically in yes. that vengeance that's what they want yeah you know um there's something that i think this the this thing in la revealed too which is i i'm sure people asked you this question for the last several years leonidas like people would come up to to me and say well like what what do they want because i'm out talking about I'm, we're talking about the leftists and we're i'm out talking about the crazies and they're like, well, what, what, what do they want? What do they really fundamentally stand for? And my, the only answer I could ever come up with was, well, they don't want anything positive. They just all agree on the destruction of Western civilization. Mm -hmm. But they all have their own reasons. And there's no, like, unifying – there's no utopian vision that they share. It's unlike communism in, or in the sense that, you know, at least with the communists and the Marxists, there was this – this Shangri-La, this light at the end of the tunnel, we're going to have the utopia someday. It was still stupid, but at least they all shared this, like, positive vision for this is, you know, we're going to sing Kumbaya and shared housing and all work for the benefit of <laughs> each other. And, like, that that will be the way everything is. And yeah. it might be dumb, but at least it's psychologically a positive projection of, like, this is what I want in the future. I don't see that from the modern left at all. I see only a... A more nihilistic like i don't know what i want but i want to tear this down and that's yeah. the only thing that seems to unite them and then when you you hear a tape like this it's like yeah obviously they're not united because they're not united they've never been united they're only all they have is a common enemy which is individualism basically right yeah i i, I agree with that um they they have things that they say they want uh like equity they want they want to eliminate racial disparities and the gender pay gap. And, you know, they, they have goals that they say they want. But like you said, they their methods and the the march that they that, that they enlist, they basically tearing thing, tearing down structures. That's their whole fo focus like this. And we saw that sort of thing in uh, the, the Cultural Revolution in China, uh -huh. where they felt like it's like, OK, like we want to move into a, a communist society and we want to get rid of all of the capitalist ideologies and the old history from ancient China in order to move into this utopian ideals. And so their solution to that was to tear everything down. And Mao actually said himself that, you know, in order to uh, create a new society, the old site needs to be swept clean. And that's the kind of ideology that progressives have in the modern era that 
the old site needs to be swept clean so that they can build up from the ashes. So yeah, I think they're hyper-focused on just tearing down institutions, just infiltrating institutions everywhere they possibly can, gaining power, and then just tearing things down from the inside out and then figuring it out later on. Yeah. And it's worth noting with, with China, because I've a lot of people are starting to see, especially Chinese people are starting to see what's going on in the U.S. as a a variant or a, a, a reincarnation of the cultural revolution in the 70s in China. Yeah. And, you know, Mao, it was the four olds that he was trying to tear down and they weren't right. political things. They were um, old culture, old ideas, old yep. habits um, and old customs, which I'm not sure exactly what the differentiation between some of those is. But they're all this isn't about like we need to tear this particular infrastructure or institution down. It's it's about transforming uh the way people think and feel and act it's much more 1984 newspeakish where right. we want people to change who they are fundamentally and what their culture is and we're not necessarily needing to remove the institutions uh they just they need to be populated with this new ideology which is why you have things like year zero and that kind of stuff where you just and why we have now the destruction of statues Right. Destruction of, destruction of statues, changing names, basically erasing history mm -hmm. uh, yep. so that they could start from scratch and, like you said, create a brand new society and a brand new culture and institute a paradigm shift from the old to the new, whatever that meant to them. And we see that same thing happening here. And uh, critical race theory is one is one way that's happening. Uh, radical gender theory, queer theory, whatever uh, is, is another way that's happening. Um, you see all of these radical ideologies infiltrating our institutions for the purpose of dismantling the way, dismantling truth. We'll put it that way. Dismantling what we know to be true, what we know is reality, and reshaping it to mean something else. And uh, Juliet mentioned it earlier, you know, the redefinitions of words and, and mm -hmm. changing the lexicon and terminology. And you know, basically just, you know, gaslighting everybody and saying that, like, oh, what you thought was real before was not real at all. This is the true reality. And they're doing everything they can to change that. So, yeah, it's I mean, it's really terrifying. Um, just the because it is it's kind of just this tear it all down. I mean, to, it doesn't make sense to me to have a desire where you don't know what you want in the end. Like you have no vision of what the future actually is. You just mm. start with, you know, burn the house down. It's and then psychologically, it's really dangerous, right? It's just I mean, like, that's terrifying. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it is very, very much like the uh, cultural re revolution in China. Um, I read this book, Wild Swans, that goes over three generations and one family. And the part where the youngest person in the book, the daughter, she's a teenager in school during the Cultural Revolution. That part was really shocking to read because it was right around the same time we're changing street names and taking down statues and mm, rewriting history yeah. to fit the modern view on things. Mm. And that, uh, that's when I really got it, what was happening around us. It was kind of like a wake up call and oh man we do not want to see that happen in anywhere ever again but in our society especially no we do not i mean mal was responsible for far more deaths than 
both Hitler and Stalin combined. So, I mean, okay. it's just, it, and, and we don't really talk about it. That, that's another thing I find interesting is that we don't talk about Mao in the Chinese Cultural Revolution, the Great Leap Forward. We don't really talk about it very much in America. We talk about the Holocaust all the time, which is important and we should talk about it. Um, you know, we know about Lenin, we know about Stalin, but not, I, I asked people if they've heard of Mao and most people, a lot of people, I don't say most people, but a lot of people haven't, they don't know, they don't even know who Mao is, let alone that haven't heard of the cultural revolution. So it's an interesting thing that that sort of, that sort of history, cause that wasn't that long ago, guys, like, that was no. not that long ago. No, and no, not at all. People don't know what happened i mean and millions upon millions of people died as a result a result of that so yeah i I agree with you julia that's not something we want to see instituted here but you know one of the things i think about is you know i i try to be a very logical thinker um and and try to be rational when i can and be be cognizant of when um I'm falling into emotional reasoning territory when i'm feeling emotional and you know i'm not being as rational but for a progressive ideology, it's almost entirely driven by emotional reasoning. Yep. It's, I feel this, therefore it's true. Mm-hmm. And so there's no real introspection and there's no real, uh, you think about second and third order thinking, thinking about the the results of your decisions. Um, it's very myopic. It's very like, I feel this, so I'm going to do this. Let's burn down this building because I'm mm-hmm. mad about George Floyd. I'm not going to think about what the, ripple effects of that are going to be. I'm not going to think about the owner of the building. I'm not going to think about anything else other than the fact that I'm mad about this video that I saw and the facts that I'm not even aware of that I'm not sure about. And I'm going to go burn down this building and loot this store or support people that do it. Uh, I'm going to post a black square on my Instagram, a a milder example, to support Mm -hmm. this cause that I'm not even sure of all the facts in the scenario. And so it's it everything's just very emotionally driven and people aren't thinking about and uh, the the long term consequences of the behavior and the decisions that we're making here. And like I said, people aren't even aware. A lot of people aren't even aware of the cultural revolution to even make that comparison. So it's it's a problem on a multiple different fronts. Yeah. I started understanding the left a little bit more when I started to view it less as a philosophy or political ideology and more as a psychological dysfunction. Um, And yeah, you need ideas to justify it, uh, but those are a dime a dozen. I mean, there's crappy philosophy and political books, you know, everywhere. (laughs) They're easy to find. You can justify anything, uh, but it's primarily, it seems to be driven by uh, psychology, Uh which is, which is scary. And, you know, uh, you know, Mao, (sighs) I think, well, one of the reasons I think people don't know about Mao is I think a lot of the people in power now, and I mean, the, like, maybe they're they're leaving power soon, but they're like my parents' generation, like mm-hmm. people in their 60s and 70s. Mm-hmm. They were the people carrying little red books around in the 60s and 70s, like, yeah. <laughs> 1960s and 70s. Like, they were, they were the ones carrying Mao's little red book around. They were the ones that were pro-communist China. Yeah. Um and and you know something to understand about Mao too is he did not he didn't kill those people by it's not like he sent soldiers out to murder people he didn't right. do what Stalin did which is lock people in gulags what he did um was basically manipulate 
writings. He manipulated language. He had a cultural committee. Uh, there was a famous, uh, well, his wife was on it and some other yep. kind of famous professors and that kind of stuff. And he manipulated the intellectual milieu of the time. <laughs> like that's what he, he did. did and sat yeah. back. And he also was not clear on what he really wanted. So he left everyone in this state of guessing what does he want? I'm going to uh -huh. try this and I'm going to try that. Yeah. And like he, he did not make his, his plans clear, which, which allowed him to uh, declare anyone a traitor at any time and sacrifice them uh, because it wasn't really clear what he wanted. And he could always blame the people that did – if something went wrong, he could blame the people who did it because he never directly ordered anything. He was just kind of like this, this – um, master i, I want to say propagandist but that's too low level he was like a a master intellectual propagandist he like knew how to manipulate the intellectual class and they went out and did his bidding and it was it was students who students murdered yeah. people right <laughs> because yeah the red guard including yeah. their professors yeah 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 it's it's an interesting thing because we we talk about propaganda and use that word, but you know, the way the media is, was manipulated is you know, stories would be filtered through the lens of yep. Maoism. Uh -huh. And like, if, if a particular story didn't fit the agenda, then it didn't get, it didn't get ran. Same thing with uh, research papers and, and uh, you know, intellectual, uh, intellectual speeches, what, whatever was coming out from, from intelligentsia. Mm -hmm. was filtered through <laughs> that filter of, of Maoism. And uh, so that should sound familiar to people because we see that <laughs> yeah, sort of thing yeah. happening. <laughs> and, and, and that's not a joke. We see that kind of thing happening now mm -hmm. at our universities and research centers and in our own media where things are filtered through a particular, through a particular filter to make sure that it fits a particular ideology or ideological bent. And so that's happening. But yeah, you're absolutely right. The way that the way that Mal operated was uh, very nefarious. And there was a, a a historian, and I'm forgetting his name right now, but he talked about how during Mal's reign, basically people were turning against their own family members. Mm -hmm. They were turning against their own neighbors. Um, the level of trust was gone because nobody knew who to trust. Nobody knew who they could depend on. Uh, neighbors were turning in neighbors. <laughs> He's like, okay. like this, this person's a capitalist and then they're gone. Um, but you know, that, that sort of thing. And so trust was gone. Humanity, a sense of humanity was gone. Mm -hmm. And again, that's just sound familiar to people because that sort of thing is happening in our own society where, you know, and I think not too long ago, the FBI was asking, you know, children to turn in their parents. Uh -huh. <laughs> like, so, I mean, it's like we're seeing that sort of thing happen, and it's just uh, it's, it's mind boggling. Yeah, and, and and with I I mean sometimes people you'd people there's like a straw man thing that happens when you suggest what you're suggesting. Yeah. People say something like, "Well." Are you are you saying that the government calls CNN and tells them what to do? Like that doesn't happen. You're a conspiracy theorist, weirdo. And and yeah. and the reason that I I, uh, I I find that line of of argumentation both repugnant and dishonest is 
A, that's not at all what needs to be happening. And B, mm. that's not what's happened historically. Mao didn't do that. It was like a, it was a tiny circle of intellectuals, a tiny, tiny circle. He would send his wife on errands to go meet professors and get them into yeah. a little cabal. It was a tiny group of people and they didn't give orders. They didn't, they didn't say you have to do this. They right. just, they just kind of set an example and told you what to look for and kind of people kind of knew that you had to kind of fall in line because it was dangerous to not fall in line and like it was all innuendo it's like i've used this analogy before but it's like when tony soprano shows up at your house and he says hey man uh, i want you to do me a favor he doesn't have to threaten to break your legs you know damn well you'd have to do a favor (laughs) (laughs) right well i i I think about the the, uh the fbi showing up to facebook and saying exactly like like hey um you may be getting some Russian disinformation in this Hunter Biden stuff. So uh, I don't know. You may just want to keep an eye on it. It's like they weren't asking. <laughs> they were not. <laughs> right. That right. was not in a fact, favor. <laughs> in fact, I would make the argument that they fundamentally, an organization that has the power of the government behind it, fundamentally can't ask favors. It's impossible. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Because it's all inherent. And you know, like right. if you don't do it, then they're going to be showing right back up on your doorstep, and it's not going to go well. So right. I mean, and, and people kind of brush that basement, off. Yeah, if you got somebody handcuffed and locked in your basement, and you're like, "Do you love me?" And they say yes. Like that's not a relationship. <laughs> <laughs> they said it though. They said they <laughs> right. I I didn't make yeah. them say it. Well, yeah, I, I know, <laughs> but they're locked in your basement. Right. <laughs> Oh, man. But yeah, no. So another point, too, is, uh, you know, I mentioned how uh, people aren't very aware of Mao or the Cultural Revolution. How many people yep. do you think are aware that Patrice Collars, the one of the founders of Black Lives Matter, how many people do you think are aware that she was praised for having a, a race oriented book and they had it she had it compared to Mao's little red book and she and she was proud of that she Uh was proud that she had this this sort of manual for um for racial activism compared to Mao's little red book she she bragged about it as if it was an accomplishment and she's called herself I mean mean, we talked about this before that she's called herself a a trained Marxist you know all the all the founders called themselves trained Marxists and they follow Mao and uh and, and that sort of ideology. And I'm just curious how many people actually know this. You know, they put hashtag Black Lives Matter on their bio, on their bios on Twitter, and they don't realize that Black Lives Matter is a Marxist organization whose founders support support Mao and the Cultural Revolution. It's, it's insane. So it's just it, it's ignorance. It's just people aren't aware of what's happening, and they fall for the again the the word manipulation. The yep. And they so black. Of course, I believe Black Lives Matter. Of course, I support that. So like they fall for that on the surface, the Martin Bailey, and then underneath all is all this other stuff that they're they're not even aware of. And and then here we are. Don't even can't even define the word woman anymore. (laughs) Well, it's so frustrating too because if there's certain things like that information, I think would make a lot of people say, wait a second, what, you know, the, yeah. the Marxists, what, <laughs> if they even know, like know what a Marxist is, honestly. Right. I mean, I was a political science major and they did a really good job of not even mentioning any of that. So that was interesting, but um, you know, like we can't reach the people that need to hear this stuff. 
the, the censorship has made it nearly impossible. And then just everybody has that knee jerk reaction now where it's like, right. oh, well, you're racist. Like if you yeah. if you say anything negative about this organization, you're obviously racist. Mm-hmm. So we can't yeah. tell them. <laughs> it's like, oh. So wait, yeah. Julia, you, you're a political science major, and Leonidas, uh, I, I, I'm going to ask you a question based on something Leonidas said, because you said, I was going to accuse you, Leonidas, of being too generous, because you said, <laughs> okay. people people understand, like, they know about Stalin, and I was going to say, no, they don't. Uh, <laughs> Juliet, did you learn about Stalin in political science? No, I mean, I did the political <laughs> theory, international relations. I did. I had a history minor. I, nothing, not a peep about any of that. I had to teach myself. Like literally, half the books on my shelves are on Stalin or Mao or you know Marxism right. in general because I never learned anything about it. I, I realized at one point I didn't know the difference between communism and socialism, so that's where it yeah. started. I just have gone down a really long road. But isn't that interesting? I mean, I went to it an honors university, and they managed to just skirt all of those subjects. That's but I'll amazing. bet they taught you the conclusions. Yeah, well, yeah. yeah. Of all those. Cap- like, yeah, capitalism. Of, yeah, they taught me yeah. Capitalism is bad. Crazy right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Like war, war is no longer possible because we trade with each other. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, that's everything is fine. I, you know what? There's a trivial show. There's a trivia show I listen to um, almost every week, and one of the questions the other day was, "What percentage of America's history uh, has been uh, has America been engaged actively in war? Not a declared war, but like had troops somewhere fighting." What was the answer? I don't remember the exact number, but it was like 93% or something. Wow. It was like some ridiculous. Something it was in the outrageous. 90s. I think it was like 93. It might have been higher, but yeah. That's outrageous. It was like 93%. <laughs> Believable, but outrageous. Right. Yeah. Because yeah. we're, we're always, we always have troops somewhere doing something. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. you made a point um, also that I, I don't think I hear often enough. And I think it's a really good point um, about, you know, we, we talked about, the collectivism of of the leftists and and mm. the progressives but you made a point about a zero sum game and none of their arguments would have any weight or matter if they didn't accept the premise of zero sum um yeah. the entire argument over dividing the pizza uh rests on the premise that it's a zero sum game can you expand on that a little bit and explain what you mean by like that being a problem yeah, I mean, it's it's a basic economic fallacy, this idea, and you see it a lot with wealth conversations when people talk about the wealth gap. And people think that because a certain group has a less amount of wealth in, in this example than another group, then that means that other group has exploited this group because there's only a certain amount of wealth to go around. There's only a fixed pie and we have to divide it amongst ourselves. And that's where ideas of like equity come from too, is this idea that we have to evenly split this pie and, and separate it out to everybody. And if we don't, then this group over here is going to take all the pie and leave one piece for, for uh, you know, the, the Latinx people. <laughs> But I mean, that's the basic idea. And then and it doesn't just apply to wealth. It applies to pretty much everything where they think that um, because this group is uh, you know, racial disparities. So this group has 
uh, a certain amount of whatever this group and this group doesn't doesn't have as much issue with housing, for instance, than this other group, then that means that the, the other group is being exploited. And so it's this constant idea of splitting the world into oppressors and victims and thinking that because one group does better than another group, then it's obviously indicative of some kind of oppressive oppression or bias or, or something on a systemic level that needs to be solved. Whereas, you know, we can go back to the wealth example, the pie actually expands and it's not a fixed pie. There is not a, a finite amount of wealth that needs to be separated and needs to be split evenly. Um, and I always use the example, like if, when we're talking about wealth in, in specifically, like if I create something, because if you and I both have the same amount of wealth and I create something that's worth, I don't know, a, a million dollars, and then all of a sudden my wealth has gone up by my, my, uh, my assets have gone up a million dollars and yours has stayed the same. So now our wealth gap is huge, even though nothing has changed for you at all. But the gap has widened and now people will look at that. And so they'll say that there's some systemic issue that needs to be resolved. And now I have to give you half of my wealth so that you feel better. And it's just, it, it's right. just, it's completely fallacious reasoning and it makes no sense. And that, that doesn't mean that there aren't people who exploit and that there aren't people who, who steal and, and cause issues. Sure. Um, but most on of a them grand, are in Washington uh, DC, but ex exactly, yeah. exactly. <laughs> so, I mean, that's like, like to deny that stuff like that exists would be foolish, but on a grand scheme, on a grand scale, uh, to say that everything is a fixed pie and because one group excels and another group doesn't as much, that's indicative of some kind of bias. It's ridiculous. It, it makes no sense. And you need strong evidence to prove it. Um, otherwise, I mean, People like Ibram X. Kendi, like he says that the, the very existence of racial disparities is indicative of racism in the system. And that's just totally wrong because it doesn't account for any of the other variables, any of the other numeral, numerous variables that exist that might cause disparities between individuals, let alone between groups. And only looking at one univariate analysis and saying, yes, this this is the cause for these disparities and because it's a fixed pie and we have to split things evenly. Otherwise it's, it's unfair. makes no sense. I mean, the split pie thing is so stupid. If you just look at history, like it's just dumb. Mm -hmm. Like if it was a, if it was a fixed pie, we would have the same net wealth as we did 400 years ago. Right. Yeah. So clearly wealth increases clearly productivity has gone up and more things are in the world and wealth like that's just a like at face value it's just it's one of the dumbest arguments you could possibly make like it, are you like humans would have to be stagnant if that were true and they're not to be, yeah it would have to <laughs> so, be so <laughs> great why do i have an iphone then because that iphone represents more probably more productivity than the entire human race had 500 years ago. So like, how, how is it, how is that that we both have iPhones? What happened? <laughs> like, uh, yeah, but yeah. That, that one, that one really, that one really gets me. There was, I was going to ask you another question, but now I forget what it was. That's okay. But oh, I mean, it is, oh, it is no, wait. logic. Yeah. I was going to get myself in trouble. I'm going to get myself in trouble. Uh -oh. All right. Let's and do I, it. Yeah. Because why does it, well, I maybe I know why people don't ask this for the same reason I'm hesitant to even ask it. Do it, man. Why don't we have the question of like 
why are all the NBA players black? Can That's we have that question. conversation? Ibram yes, X. Kendi, why aren't there Jewish and Chinese basketball players? Is, so, that, is that a racial disparity because there's inherent systemic racism in the NBA against like curly haired gingers? What's going on? <laughs> so I've, I've written a book and I mentioned, I mentioned that be, before we came on the air, but yep. um, it's called Raising Victims, The Pernicious Rise of Critical Race Theory. And it really looks at the arguments of critical race theory and diversity, equity and inclusion and um, intersectionality and you know equity, all all the stuff. But that's one of the things I talk about in the book is this idea of diversity and equity, and that we need to balance things. And and again, the Ibram X. Kendi quote, where any existence of racial disparities in a system is indicative of racism. So yeah, if you look at the NBA, that, which is like 95, 96% blacks, maybe, maybe higher than that. I don't remember the exact percentage, but it's mostly non-white. Then if we are to adhere to the systemic racism framework and ideology, then yeah, we have to assume that the system is biased against white people. And therefore we need to initiate, initiate some kind of equity program in order to get more white players in, in, in the league. That was, I mean, it would have to be that. So, and it, he was and asked. Those damn West Africans are just like oppressing all the other marathon runners. It's like it's a shame. unbelievable. Yeah, I know. Yeah, absolutely. And like, why don't we have more, you know, overweight people in gymnastics in Olympics? It's like it's it's unfair. It's just well, Sports Illustrated is trying to fix that, but keep going. <laughs> I was about to say, give them time. They're working on it. Oh, <laughs> Can't can't do a back handspring, but going to the Olympics. Okay, uh, I, I, I love I love when people do this. Someone in chat just said, "Really, Yao Ming." <laughs> Yao Ming. Like, I, I, I love when people do that. I, I assume it's a joke. It's it's, it's like you can make some generalized no. statement, and someone's like, "I found an instance that's an exception." <laughs> oh, the, the rule Good is disproven. <laughs> Good for well, you. Yeah. I guess. I guess I guess women do have penises because there is one apparently. <laughs> there right? is like one. that's. <laughs> well, listen, Yao well, Ming not, is sure Yao Ming that. is white adjacent, so he doesn't count. Oh, right. Right. oh yeah, so, that's true. Uh, it's, it's, yeah, <laughs> he's certainly not a curly haired. Uh, he's certainly not a curly haired uh, Jewish ginger. So, which is what I'm. I'm upset that there aren't more of those in basketball. There should be. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if we're going, but again, if we're going to adhere to that ideology, we have to, I mean, it has to be that. So and I remember Ibram X. Kendi was asked about vaccines and how uh, yeah, the vaccine mandates in New York were disproportionately affecting the, the black population. Uh-huh. And he was asked specifically, like, if that was an example of systemic racism. And he, of course, he waffled on it and just... You know, well, 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 I don't know. I mean, it's not really, you know, black people, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, he, he walked around, but it would have to be because he said specifically that if if there's any example of disparity, it has to be racism. So it would have to be that. But, yeah. you know, it, it's only for them. It's only if it's if it's white people on top, if it's if it's completely black people, if it's entire team of black people, then it's fine. If we have a movie of nothing but black actors, then it's fine. <laughs> There's yeah. no, we don't, we don't need any diversity. We don't need any equity initiatives. But to circle back, in fairness, people, if they're yeah. all Eddie Murphy, it can work pretty well. <laughs> Perfectly. 
we've seen that perfectly yes <laughs> that's true he just plays everybody that he actually did a good job at that too it was pretty yeah impressive. was it coming to america he was like he, he was like he did he was, it coming old, he was a jewish Andrew. guy he was an old jewish guy <laughs> <laughs> so eddie murphy should be in the nba and that would solve the problem <laughs> absolutely he just play play everybody he'd be like yao ming even yeah yeah all right well um, I did, we didn't even get to your second story yet, so let me ask you about what should we be paying attention to that that we're not. And uh, it, you know, it's, it's not all that different from what we've been talking about. I mean, it kind of fits into the framework of uh, of this conversation. But there was an article in the Daily Caller the other day that reported that the University of Florida Health's youth gender program, youth gender program. Offers medical treatments to minors. That's the thing. The youth gender yeah, program. Youth gender <laughs> program is offering is offering medical treatment to minors to help them present as the opposite sex. And it says the program boasted about helping a minor undergo hormones and feminizing facial surgery, and to obtain a referral for gender affirmation surgery. And they said that there's about 50 children that are on puberty blockers that they're following here. So I, it's this is insane to me. And I don't know if you if you heard about the the Matt Walsh thing where he exposed what was going on at Vanderbilt, um, where the faculty was discussing how big of a money maker this stuff is. Uh, you know, transgender surgeries and hormone treatments for uh, not just for adults but for children for minors. Mm -hmm. And yep. they they also threatened their staff that they couldn't object on any grounds including religious grounds and all of this crazy stuff uh, but yeah in for the people who thought that that was just contained to vanderbilt that that was just a you know a one-off and isolated incident now it's happening at the university of florida it just shows that this stuff is everywhere it's all over the place mm -hmm. and, and and people are treating it as something so like people act shocked when you push back against it they're like oh no 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 like this is this is supported by research we are being compassionate and being affirming it's called in our gender care. affirming care <laughs> yeah that's what they're, how could you oppose it don't you affirm don't don't you want people yeah it's it, it's outrageous aren't you gender but, affirming yeah aren't you gender affirming come on one of the one of the 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 things that bothered me about this cuz i i read obviously i read this article and i looked at the website for um university the uh the university of florida's health gender program thing that they reference yeah. they they say they they have a quote from a patient a former patient yeah. who says this is on their website and advertising to people your parents may not understand and may fight your transition but this is the way you were born one patient said in a uf health testimonial prominently featured on the website your authentic life is worth living for so this is a it's a an overt attempt to undermine uh, parental guidance and control over children in in order to uh, I, I will use the word exploit in order to exploit them for you know I would say maybe it's about money but I think it's probably more about ideological uh, gains. I yeah I, I think it's both I, I I think that money drives it. Uh, but it's definitely about ideology. Um, I I have no doubt that there's a lot of people out there who think that they're doing the right thing, uh -huh. that they think that yeah. they're justified. But yeah, I mean, and and again, we see this sort of uh, you know underhanded kind of tactic to take over children. Like children belong to the state, children belong to the ideology. They don't belong to their parents. This is that kind of thing that's 
it's a through line that runs through all of progressivism. And we saw it with uh, critical race theory in schools where teachers were trying to figure out ways to get the curriculum into children without parents knowing what was being taught. And they were trying to yep. be very sneaky about what they were in. I mean, there were teachers saying, you know, when when everything went to Zoom meetings and uh, during the COVID stuff, there were teachers literally conspiring <laughs> to figure out how to teach kids without okay. parents in the room so that they could instill this ideology. And we, so we're seeing that again with, with this gender stuff. And it's, it's outrageous that that people believe that this is okay, that they can basically usurp the parents and become the parental authorities and do whatever they want to these children. And, you know, even beyond the obvious ethical issues of performing these kind of medical procedures on kids, I mean, there's, there's extensive research that's showing that these kind of things that cause problems, they, they cause problems with cognitive development issues. They cause uh, fertility problems. And, you know, people that detransition later on when they come to their senses, start talking about how they were lied to and how they were taken advantage of and how they had their lives essentially ruined. So, I mean, it's just, it's outrageous to be, if you're an adult and you want to do it, I, okay, whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to judge you. You do your thing. I'm not going to affirm it. I'm not, I mean, I'm not going to participate in the delusion, mm-hmm. but like, if that's what you want to do and that makes you happy, okay, go do it. I'm going to leave you alone. But to do it, the children who, you know, and the kids go through all kinds of struggles with identity and, but cutting off their breasts, putting them on hormones, that cannot be the answer and you cannot be allowed to do that to kids. I mean, it's just, it's outrageous. And I can't believe we're having this conversation. I was just going to say, I can't believe, like, if I rewound to the 1980s and told my teenage self, hey, what's going to happen in 30 years is you're going to have a conversation and, and, and the premise or the, the, the subtext will be that people are shocked that hormone therapy and, and, and gender reassignment surgery for teenagers has negative consequences. <laughs> that's going to be a debatable issue. Yeah. It's like, like, okay. Okay. Trump is. <laughs> okay. So listen, Trump has been president. Kanye wanted right. to run. <laughs> yeah. And we're talking about gender affirming surgery. Right. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> right. And modern science is shocked that there's a, there's an argument over whether hormone treatment at, at puberty affects sterility. <laughs> right. You've got to be kidding me. Yes. It's outrageous, but you know, it's, uh, yeah. one of the, one of the one of the things I I talk about when it comes to this topic is is this idea, and it, and it's not just this topic. It it's pretty much surrounds any topic we talk about with within the confines of progressivism, but it's this idea of compassion and empathy, mm-hmm. and a lot of times people will attack me if I disagree with their their premise or or their argument. They'll attack me and say that I can't make you be compassionate or I can't make you care about people. So it's this whole idea that like I'm That's doing this because I care. Yeah, right. Like like because I, I don't care because I disagree. <laughs> that mm. we, should, we should cut off a 16 year old's breast. I, I disagree with that. But yeah, so this this idea of compassion. We're supposed to believe that these sort of things are compassionate and empathetic. But it, it's actually the ap- exact opposite because compassion does not induce harm or even potential harm in favor of feelings. And what I would say is if if your emotions drive you to hurt somebody else, then that is in no way compassionate. And you can think about, you can think about it as a parent, because if your children want to play in busy traffic, for example, 
and they get really upset if you don't let them do it, uh, then, you know, if you let them go because of that and say that you're being compassionate, then you are being a awful parent and you should uh-huh. go to prison you should go to prison and probably lose your kids for negligence right. and reckless you know reckless endangerment but, but i mean but at the same time clearly no parent is going to want their children to be sad and upset and you know it, they don't want them to, to feel those negative feelings but keeping them safe is going to take priority to that so i mean so it's that it's that juxtaposition where people think that like well this person this child feels like they're a different gender so what so what i mean that that doesn't mean we're going to treat them badly and try to make them feel bad about themselves and like we're going to be there for care for them but our first priority is to keep them safe like we're not going to just affirm it and to let them go play in traffic that's insane and it's just it's not compassionate at all Uh uh-uh yeah this i i've had conversations with people that similar to this right where it's i i can go I'll let people, if they want to define compassion or, or empathy as a, a pure emotional experience, then my response will be fine. But then it's basically worthless. It might be a motivator, but you have to apply reason to it because otherwise you'll do a lot of evil mm-hmm. uh, right. if you just go. Or you could go the other way and say it's not really empathy if you refuse to look at the consequences. And the analogy that I sometimes like to use is like there's a heroin addict who's like one injection away from death. And they're in a lot of pain because withdrawal sucks. And you're like, that, ah, yeah, but I have compassion, so I'm gonna give them. I'm gonna, you know, give yeah. them some more heroin. It's like, well, that's. I guess you could say that's compassion if your compassion is inhuman. If it's just like <laughs> you have no reason ability, you have no ability to project consequences into the future, mm-hmm. and you're just responding like a, uh, like an animal to your right. instinct in the moment, fine. But that's a subhuman kind of compassion. That's not real compassion. Real compassion is like, it's time for the methadone clinic, uh-huh. right? Yeah. Like, I don't care if you don't want to go. <laughs> it's, it's time to like- <laughs> Time to go. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're, you're absolutely correct. And uh, I like the way you put it. And it's compassion not tempered by reason, right? You, uh-huh. like, compassion has to be tempered by reason. Because and, you live in reality and reason yeah. tells you what reality will do <laughs> As a result of your actions, like your actions have consequences in reality and reason checks whether what's going on comports with reality. Like you can't abandon that. You can't be like, well, I don't care what the consequences are in reality. It's like, well, then you're you're not living in reality. Right. (laughs) But my feelings, my feelings, Carter. (laughs) But my analogy I like to use. Yeah. (laughs) And I normally use this, this analogy when I'm talking about race and, uh, learned helplessness and, and uh, victimhood and that sort of thing. But I think it applies here uh, because it's an identity thing. And like, I always use the analogy of uh, Nemo getting stuck in the filter, right. from finding Nemo mm-hmm. and Gil comes in and says, nobody touch him. <laughs> like, like he's, he's in the filter. He thinks he's in danger. He feels helpless. He feels victimized. He feels like he can't get out on his own. Um, he has all of these, all of these things are part of his identity in that moment. And all the other fish are affirming that identity and say, like, oh, we got to help him. We got to get him out because he has a gimpy fin and he can't swim and oh, whatever. And Gil's like, no, nope, nobody touch him because he knows that that's not correct. That's not his that's not reality. He's using reason. And he's not he, he knows that if he allows him to 
perpetuate that identity. He's going to live in that false reality and he's going to be weak because of it. He's going to, it's going to cause more problems. So yep. ultimately Gil is the most compassionate fish in that tank because he lets Nemo figure that out for himself and find his own strength and find his true identity. And, you know, in, instead of, you know, saying that, yes, he's a, <laughs> he, he's a weak, Gimp, gimpy fish who can't swim out of a filter by on his, on his own because that's how he identifies and look how compassionate I am because I affirmed him. If we were in the tank, the Smithsonian would have a PDF about how uh, Gil is unable or not Gil uh, Nemo's unable to actually swim away from the filter and that's a yep. it's a it's a. <laughs> <laughs> form of whiteness to expect yes. him to be able to away Absolutely. <laughs> and Gil, Gil would have to go to uh, re-education and <laughs> racial sensitivity yeah. training. <laughs> and the only way to solve it is to put everybody in a filter. So everybody has to be in a filter. <laughs> <laughs> right. Or Equity. sushi. If everyone's sushi, they'll all... <laughs> By the way, that's that's my... I Honestly, I, I, I fully do believe this. I'm not being hyperbolic. The only way we're all equal is when we're dead. That's mm-hmm. it. Like that's equality only happens when we're bones. Yeah. Even then there's differences, but we're our lives are equal at that point because <laughs> they're not true. Um, that's true. That's true. But yeah. Yeah. Uh, and they'll, that's the only way to make people equal is, you know, reduce everybody to nothing. And I mean, even even at the bottom, like you think about like communist societies uh, where everybody is equal at the bottom, like they're still <laughs> I mean, they're still in inequalities even there because you can't. Again, I'm going to quote Ayn Rand because I, I, I love Ayn Rand, mm-hmm. but uh, she talks about like this, this egalitarian. I'm going to paraphrase her, but she talks about this egalitarian ideology thinking that you can equalize everybody. But the only way to do that is to disregard people's minds and abilities and basically force people to be equal so that it cannot be done without tyranny. You have to uh, tyrannize and force people to be equal because, you know, minds and abilities are never going to be, never going to be equal. But yeah. Yeah. You know, on on the gender stuff, an interesting thing that's a, a development that I've seen, and I was curious about what would happen in the U.S. here. The progressive love Europe. They always love to like everyone in San Francisco pretends that like it's a little Paris, right? They're like, oh, we just you know they all they all want at least they used to. They all want to be Europe because uh, yeah. Europe's more progressive and cool. Um, <laughs> they have higher taxes. I guess that's what makes them awesome. Um, <laughs> but. Uh, they all, they all love Europe, but even in the UK, Tavistock is shutting down. Uh, there was a there was a which is the the, the their gender affirming care mm-hmm. facility is shutting down. There are studies that were uh, I don't remember which government agency commissioned these, but there was government studies, and it turned out like actually, yeah, this is not good. Um, they are uh, they're not. I, I don't even think their conclusion was they weren't even coming to a conclusion that that we might agree with, which is like hey don't do this on kids at all. I think their conclusion was you're not even being careful about uh-huh. like, you're, you're not even like going to therapy first and making sure that, you know, they're not just depressed. Yeah. Um, like you didn't check their locker before you cut off their breasts and gave them hormones. Um, so they're shutting that down. And I, and I, I thought, I wonder if anyone will bother to notice this in the U S or if we're just going to march along in our own insanity because, uh, this time we don't like Europe has taken a turn, or at least the UK 
veered a little bit away from the the craziness they were going on and uh i guess we're we're just better we're more intent on we <laughs> well true gender affirming surgery has never been tried carter oh, so. I, I see <laughs> I think it's that. I, I I think it's that. I think it'll go ignored because I think I think people are too entrenched in their ideology, and if somebody else who claims to follow their ideology gets you know exposed for being you know terrible or whatever, then I they they're just going to write it off as something that's it's going to be the no true Scotsman fallacy that pops out. It's like oh well. <laughs> No true gender activists would ever do that. Uh-huh. So they're not a part of our crew. And then they, they get excommunicated and then the, the march continues. So, I, I, I mean, we're dealing with something that does not operate in the realm of logic and reason. So I, I don't see any aspect of this being adjusted based on evidence or any, no. any semblance of logic or reason. Because, I mean, if no, nobody can... Art, Nobody can even articulate what it is that they're affirming. Like they can't articulate what it is that they're doing. It's like when they say like, oh, this, this little girl feels like she is a boy. So therefore we're going to perform gender affirming surgery. It's like, well, what does that mean? What does that mean? You're going to affirm her gender. Like what gender are you affirming? It's like, well, she's going to, she feels like a boy. It's like, well, what is that? What is a boy? And they can't tell you. It's just, it feels right. like a boy. It's what she, she feels. feels like, so what it's she feels Blondo. like. Right. Exactly. It has electrolytes. Like, right. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, they can't, and, and, you know, and, and, you know, again, to bring up Matt Walsh, cause he, he does good work here. Mm-hmm. Yes. He, but he did the, the, what is a woman documentary. And, you know, you have people who are supposedly experts in the field who can't answer the question. <laughs> they can't, tell you what a woman is and the only way that you could do it is is to uh to tie it to biology because the the classic definition of what a woman is and uh, it's either that or it has to be some sort of gender stereotype like wearing dresses or playing with dolls which we've been told by progressives for a long time that that does not mean anything that boys Mm -hmm. can play with dolls and boys can wear dresses and (laughs) that's not that doesn't indicate, but now all of a sudden it, it means something now. And so I, I don't know. We're told that gender stereotypes are problematic. We're told that gender is not tied to biology and then everything is flipped on its head the next day. And they say, no, no, no. Like this, this little boy is playing with Barbies. Therefore we need to put him on puberty blockers. It's like, what right. are you talking <laughs> Right. What are you talking about? And then, and then if, if, if biology was not indicative of gender, then why would you need gender affirming surgery at all? And that makes no sense either. What are you transitioning to? What are to? you doing? Yeah, why are you? What? What does? <laughs> <Right. laughs> why would cutting off breasts have anything to do with your gender if it's not tied to biology? It's it's so they're they're constantly contradicting themselves, and I don't I don't think they under I don't think they know what they believe. I I don't think they it's again it's all comes back to emotional reasoning. I feel mm-hmm. this, therefore it is. And it's yeah. just, it's, it's outrageous. I mean, I, you know, I've, this is a topic that I think, I mean, I've, I've thought about this and we've, we've interviewed um, Buck Angel, who was like an OG trans man. Like he's, they call him trans, uh, transpa, I think like grandpa. Transpa, yeah. um, and, yeah. and he's, um, you know, 
obviously biological sex is a thing, although we are even being told that that's not true, which is just false. Yeah, that's that's the thing coming right? through. Like, yeah, that's that's just false. Um, but you know, I, I'm willing to say, uh, masculinity and femininity, i.e., man and woman, I'm willing to say those are, um, those are idealistic kind of like summations of characters that each sex has. Like there are masculine, there are traits that men share. And if you stereotype those traits, that's masculinity. And there's traits that women generally share. And if you stereotype those, that's femininity. Like that's sure. fine. Um, and I'm willing to live in a world with David Bowie where we can say that's a, that's an effeminate guy. Like, right. okay, yeah. <laughs> that's fine. Um, but that's, that doesn't seem, that isn't what they are about and i think a lot of people think that that's what people who aren't paying attention think that that's where the left is that 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 somehow you're arguing that boy george shouldn't exist and david bowie like shouldn't exist and you know that you're, you're arguing for these 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 kind of traditional 1950s roles and that's the argument when in fact uh it is really, it is really the progressive left arguing for those roles. It is actually, yeah, because they have to. Because if you're yeah. going to throw biology out of the window, then it has to be that. Like uh -huh. that's all you have left right. is these these uh, stereotypical gender roles. And yeah, I mean, it, I think Jordan Peterson talks about this quite quite frequently that this the scale of masculinity and femininity is fairly broad. And, you know, there's men who are higher on the level or higher on the scale of femininity. And then there are women who are higher on the scale of masculinity. And, and that's true. We're just talking about different kinds of traits uh -huh. that are yep. associated, like you said, that are associated with masculinity and femininity. But it doesn't change the underlying biological reality. Like just because a, a girl's a tomboy and has more masculine you know, interest and in, in whatnot, just because that is her personality, that doesn't change her underlying biological reality. But that's what the progressives want us to believe. <laughs> and again, it comes back right. to this, these stereotypical gender roles, like, oh, she likes baseball. Therefore, she's, <laughs> she's a boy. It's like, I, I that makes no <laughs> sense. <laughs> but, yeah. but yeah, I mean, it, but it would have to be that. But yeah, I mean, the, the biological reality has to be a thing. And then for them to just completely dismiss that and say that, well, gender and then now, like you said, sex is just all socially constructed and it's not a real thing. Then, <laughs> I mean, it's this whole postmodern ideology that truth is just relative and there's nothing that's actually objective in the world. And you hear Nicole, Nicole Hannah-Jones talk about that all the time, uh, you know, relation to the 1619 Project. But truth is relative and, and no, there's no objectivity and then all that matters is my own personal perspective about who I am. So if I think myself that I am a woman, then I can project myself as a woman to the world and you have to affirm that. Now, only I can decide what a woman is. You can't decide it for me. So, so like, I can create my own uh, nebulous definition of what a woman is and everybody just has to go along with it. I'm going to create some random pronouns and then that's my own, that's now my existence and you have to go along with it. And that's, that's where the progressives are with this, this sort of thing that they say it, therefore it's true. doesn't have to have any evidence. And I don't think people understand how destructive that really is. And a couple of people in chat are saying one person says it's uh, 
uh, tomboy genocide. Another person says mm-hmm. it's a gay genocide for for you know young younger kids or not younger That's- kids, like teenagers. Right. I'm going to use a I'll use a I'll use terminology from the left. I think it's queer genocide. And I mean that in the way they mean it, like anyone who is not conforming to Uh the traditional stereotypes. Can't be that they must have they must have surgery. uh, They must have hormones. They are the the entire their entire raison d'etre, which is the like the 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 whole queer critical theory movement, the whole the whole alleged support for what they would call queering things, they're exactly attacking people who don't fit norms, mm-hmm. which yeah. is by definition, I don't mean that word in a sexual way, just that's queer. That's what that word means. Yeah, yeah, outside of the norms. And, you know, it, I think it's worth noting that gender dysphoria is a real thing. And, yes. you know, it's a real psychological disorder and has been. And, you know, I think about people like Buck Angel. And, you know, I have empathy for those people who truly feel like they're in the wrong body. But that's has a biological basis to it. They feel like their biological body is wrong. And they want to change their biological body in order to fit how they feel. It's not just some some weird personality thing, yeah. right? It's it's just it, it, they feel like they're in the wrong body. It's 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 no different than like an, anorexia or or body dysmorphic disorder. Those kind of things where they see themselves as some distorted, uh, grotesque version of who they really are, mm-hmm. and it causes this sort of dissonance, and they can't they can't reconcile it. So it's a real psychological disorder, but it's not as common <laughs> as what we're seeing in society. But what we're seeing right now is, is, is definitely a social contagion. These kids are, are taking these labels and they're attaching it to their personality. Like, and, and that's basically what I said. It's basically how I put it, that it's basically they're taking personality and they're, they're mapping gender onto it mm-hmm. and saying that, oh, since this is your personality, then that means you're this gender. And that's why we keep coming up with all these different terms and all these different, because I mean, how many person, how many different kinds of personalities are there? There's just infinite numbers of personalities. I mean, you, you well, take a person. That's where the fluidity comes from. You can change how you feel during the day. Right. Exactly. Yeah. The next day you may feel completely different than you did the day before. So now you're a different gender. And, and so it has no actual uh, biological basis as far as gender and sex go. That they're just basically substituting gender for personality, and then uh, apparently making making the argument that people should have surgery and get on hormone hormones and puberty blockers because they have a certain personality, which is outrageous. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, and they're they're preying on kids at like such a vulnerable time. I mean, I don't. There's such a small percentage of people that make it through middle school to high school without yeah. trying on different hats. You know, one year you're an athlete, the next year you're really into science, and then, you know, now you're preppy this year. Everybody does this. Like, you're figuring out who you are by trying different things. Yeah. And this is kind of like, I always go to the analogy of like, because when I was in high school, there were the emo kids. Yeah. yeah. What if? All of those people that were the emo kids in high school, like all of that, the way they dressed and the makeup and stuff, that was permanent. They couldn't undo it. Right. And they committed at 14 to 
They that. get big fangs. Fangs, <laughs> yeah, right. You know, it's terrifying because <laughs> most of those kids grow up. They grow out of that phase. They go on to live normal lives. And right now we're telling them, like, oh, you'll never grow out of this. You're yeah, gonna have to, and you if you wait, it'll only be worse. Right. So let's get right. you started at ten years old. It's just crazy. Yeah. Well, yeah, and like some somebody in the comments said that it was like tomboy genocide. So mm -hmm. you think about all the tomboys that I, I don't know if you were tomboy, Julia. You were a tomboy. Yeah. So, yeah, so, yeah. so so you yeah. think about like yeah. So if somebody came to you when so you were you're a, a man. kid, yeah, <laughs> basically you are. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't even know. Amazing. <laughs> I affirm you. I affirm you, Julia. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, if somebody came to you when you were a kid and said, oh, mm -hmm. you're, a, you're a tomboy, so therefore you must be a boy. So here you go. We're going to put you on puberty blockers. And then, you know, we're going to give you gender affirming surgery so that you can mm -hmm. fit your, so you can be a boy. I mean, it's, you hear so many stories about, right. about girls who grow up and say like, man, like if people would have done that to me, I would have done it. Because right. I felt oh, like I a boy. Probably, I would have fallen for it in sixth grade, probably. Yeah. Yeah. They they, yeah. they said like I totally I totally felt like I I fit in more with the boys. I felt mm -hmm. like a boy, and they totally would have done it. But like now they're like super feminine, and right. you know like they're all women, and it's uh -huh. it's it, it's incredible that yeah. And again, it's that whole thing not thinking about the second and third order effects, not thinking about right. long term consequences, just very myopic like. Oh, we want to be compassionate and empathetic toward this child. So mm -hmm. they say they they think they're a boy. We're going to make them a boy. Outrageous, insane. Right, right. You know, um, I think there's a a broad tactic that's happening here, um, and I think it's a tactic. It's a nihilistic tactic, which is the normalization of outliers. So you you find in anything like in this case, it's it's psychological outliers. You find psychological outliers and you normalize them. Um, and I, I think there's probably no better way to destroy concepts and to destroy um, an entire uh, an, an entire arena of concepts than by normalizing outliers, right? Um, yeah. And so, you know, when I I, I look at this. <sighs> You're right. Gender dysphoria is a thing, um, but so is just psychological dysfunction more broadly. Like, especially mm -hmm. for teenagers mm -hmm. uh, and and kids, like it's it's a it's a very difficult time. And you, what betrays? Like they can they can pretend they have compassion all they want, but what I think betrays them is the fact that if you had compassion, what you would do is you would sit down with these kids and you would start with non-permanent exploration. Yeah. You would start with really deep exploratory therapy. What's going on? Why don't you love yourself the way they are? you are? What's mm. like, are, are there other things at home going on? Are there other issues more broadly? Like what, what is it that's making you profoundly unhappy? Mm -hmm. And if after a long time and they're adults, the conclusion is, wow, you're one of these outliers who was, you know, you've got a mental configuration and psychological configuration that doesn't match your genitalia and you and you need to be Buck Angel. Okay. But that's the kind of thing that, you know, can you imagine any other 
surgery that that was like that permanent. I mean, doctors right. often won't even perform like a lot of doctors won't perform things like hysterectomies on hysterectomies, young women yep. because because you know a young woman will say, "Well, I don't ever want kids," and the doctors will say, "Well." You know, you might be of legal age to make that decision. You might be 22, but we don't believe that you will think this way in 10 years. And so we're not doing it. Um, so look at how careful they are with with adults who they are worried about are making permanent life altering decisions in a moment of uh, rash emotion. Yeah. And so I, I don't believe I don't believe that there's compassion like even the emotion of compassion underneath all of this, because I can't, I, and maybe I should, maybe I'm being naive. Maybe there is compassion. I just, I don't see how compassion can exist. And, and, and with anyone I care about, I'm curious about their psychology. And, and like, I don't understand how compassion can possibly exist and not result in a deep psychological exploration of what's going on with that child. Mm -hmm. child. Yeah, it, it comes back to that idea of misunderstanding what compassion is because they, whether they actually feel compassion, which I'm not, I don't think they do either, but they, they believe that they are being compassionate. Well, at least they say they believe they're being compassionate. That's that it comes back to the whole idea of letting children play in traffic because, like, yes, I'm this compassion. I don't want them to cry. I don't want them to be upset. Don't what you want children to be upset, Carter? Do you want children to cry? You like See, that's cowardice. Crying? That's not that's not <laughs> compassion. I know, but they think it's compassion. Uh -huh. They think that they're being compassionate by because in a normal situation, a normal adult would say, I do not like it when children cry a normal adult would say that unless, uh, unless you have sure. some deep-seated issue but no so no they're, but, they're, but like it depends on the circumstances right, right. If, if the alternative is death in traffic crying is exactly great. exactly this and that's the rational brain right mm -hmm. <laughs> but the um, the emotional brain is, is saying like oh no they're crying we need to stop them from crying and the rational brain is, is shut off so yeah it's it, it's definitely not compassion but I, but they say that it is, and then, or at least they make the argument that they're they're operating from a place of compassion. But yeah, I think you're absolutely correct that it's it's not. And I mean, how could it be? And the whole psychological element. I think about um, like people who deal. Like I mentioned, anorexia and, and uh, bulimia, and you know, psychological disorders like that. What would what would happen if we affirm those disorders? You know, okay. like it was the same kind of thing. Like somebody comes to you and they weigh like like 60 pounds and, you know, it's like skin and bones and saying, oh, my gosh, I can't eat because I'm fat. And you say, absolutely. I agree with you. I'm going to affirm your identity. <laughs> like, obviously, that's insane. That would be insane. Well, we are do doing that. the reverse because people at right. 600 pounds are saying, I feel healthy. And you're like, yes, you are. And yeah, you know, they die of a coronary exactly. the next year. But, you know, <laughs> but we didn't hurt yeah, their I feelings mean, at least. At least. Yeah. So compassion. Compassion. <laughs> <laughs> You know, you you said you've mentioned a couple of times on um, people failing to th think um, second and third order, yeah. and and one of the one of the things that I contemplate often is, um, you know, obviously for people who watch the show or any show that I do, <laughs> I'm very rational and and I'm driven by reason and and stuff. But um, underneath thinking, emotions are our motivation for everything. Mm -hmm. Like you can't you can't function without emotions. You can't even feel like you want to think about anything without feeling first like that's where it sure. starts we're not right. computers and right. i 
one of the things that since you brought up Ayn Rand a couple times, one of the things I really like about what something she said was she talked about the fundamental sin being evasion. And and she talked about how um what happens psychologically is that a and this actually interestingly, she was wrong about a lot of philosophy or a lot of uh psychology, I think, but this actually comports with, from what I understand, a lot of modern ways of thinking about psychology. Uh, your, your, your consciousness is there and a thought pops in, right? Mm. And fundamentally, your free will is only your ability to exercise one kind of binary decision. Do I think further about this or do I not think further about this? Mm-hmm. Right? And you're kind of making these decisions constantly, you know, millions and millions of times throughout the day. We're making these decisions. Do I do I think about this or do I or do I not think about this? And and I think she, I think it was her that said like the more you choose, you know, like sometimes a thought will come up and it's it causes distress emotionally. Like mm-hmm. it's a thought and think the idea of thinking about it is bothersome, right? Or or a little bit it doesn't feel good. And you can make a choice. You can say, well, I'm going to evade it. I'm going to think about something else. I'm going to watch Netflix and whatever. I'm going to move on. I don't want to think about that thing. And the more you do that, the 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 bigger hurdle it is for thoughts to come in. Like everything, you, you weaken that that muscle, that intellectual muscle. And so every little thing that's slightly discomforting, you try to push aside and push aside and push aside, and you get better and better and better at evasion. Mm-hmm. Flip side is if you say, yes, I am going to think about this, this thing that's disturbing. Um it becomes easier and easier and easier. And so the more times thoughts come up that are bothersome, the more you're willing to just, yeah, I'll think I'm going to go down this rabbit hole and see where it leads. And I like, I'm one of the things that I'm fascinated by is, is how so many people apparently have gotten into this evasion habit of, because I, I think what you're saying all makes sense. They're not doing second and third order thinking. Then the immediate question is why? Because these people aren't dumb. A lot of these people are high IQ, right. um, yeah. successful people. So it's it's not that they're dumb. Um, it's not that they don't have access to information. They've probably heard the information, mm-hmm. and they have like I think the only the only uh, explanation I have is they've chosen to evade it. They've chosen to reject. Oh, that information conflicts with something I know. That doesn't feel good. I'm not going to think about it anymore. Um, and I can't figure out exactly how we got to this this moment in history in which, and maybe we've always been this way, but so many people are just in this constant habit. They're addicted to evasion. Solve my problem for me. I I can't solve it. I can't I can't solve that problem. But I mean, it's yeah. I mean, we talk about cognitive dissonance pretty frequently, and it, I think that fits into what you're talking about, where it's, it's you know you have those two conflicting thoughts and. You know, I believe this and this thought conflicts with it. So that one's going, I'm not going to analyze it. That needs to go away so that my worldview doesn't need to get adjusted. My ideology can stay the same as it, as it is. Um, I don't know if you've, have you read Thomas Sowell and how he talks about the division of the anointed? Uh, one thing I don't, he I've talks read Thomas about, Sowell, but I don't remember that particular thing. So, so yeah, one of the things he talks about is that there's, there's people who believe that they are basically the anointed, that they are morally superior, intellectually superior, that their ideology is infallible and correct, and that their worldview is is absolutely superior, and that they should be the ones who are making decisions and 
um, because they are the they are the morally superior beings on the earth. And so they're the anointed ones. They're the ones who understand things. Everybody else is, is are just the peons who who don't know. They're not woke, right? They're not woke. They don't understand right. what's happening. Um, so I those when those people are confronted with evidence or information that conflicts with their worldview, I mean, they have a they have a pretty large incentive to dismiss that uh, and cling to their ideology and their vision of themselves as being the morally superior anointed ones. Otherwise it's going to start to fracture and they're going to realize that maybe I'm not the person who should be making decisions for everybody else. Maybe my ideology is not quite in, as infallible as I thought it was and as morally sound as I thought it was. And that's an uncomfortable place to be for anybody, whether you think that you're at the top of the moral hierarchy or not. Like if you think that you you have this particular worldview and this is the way the world is. And then something disrupts that. That's going to be uncomfortable. Um, so, I mean, I think that's a, a part of that's a human nature thing. And then uh, the other piece of that is just it, it, it's how the ideology works for those people who think that it, whether I guess we're talking progressivism is the moral morally superior ideology in that it's infallible and that it's it cannot be challenged. They think uh -huh. that it needs to be implemented. And I talk all the time how it's uh, how it's a very totalitarian ideology in mm -hmm. in its implementation because it's it's the whole idea of for the greater good, right? I believe that my ideas are right, and I believe that they're morally superior to yours, and therefore they need to be implemented, and it cannot be by choice. I cannot just leave it by chance because this is such an important thing and it's for the greater good. So therefore you need to be for your behavior needs to be controlled and you need to be forced to adhere to the ideology um, because that's how we get to utopia. And mm -hmm. so anything that challenges that is going to be discussed. Yeah. Those are four of the most dangerous words I think in, in for the greater history. good. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. Stalin, it's Stalin Mao, all the people that we talked about, that was their justification for everything. Uh -huh. It all Hitler. Uh, that was that's their justification for everything. Um, yeah, I mean, any any time <laughs> I always use the analogy of Thanos from from the Avengers, because <laughs> like, I mean, like, right. the pro the problems he brought up were legitimate, right? Like, mm -hmm. like, like legitimate issues, and you know, you can empathize with the position, but it was the ends justify the means kind of thinking that was the problem. Where mm -hmm. he believed that you know, let's wipe out half of the universe in order to solve the problem. That was the issue. <laughs> it was like the problem was a problem. There was no doubt about that. But it was this idea that he was, you know, he had this moral sort of uh, authority to do this in order for, to bring about this this better universe or better world. And that we've seen that throughout all of history. You brought up the most classic examples, but yeah, it's always been that. It's always been mm -hmm. this is the moral. This is the this is the moral, a path that we need to take, and it's for the greater good. Yeah. One analogy that one, I won't say it's an analogy. It's a framework that I've I've started to use to think about um, modern society, and it's the framework of of pre revolutionary France. Yeah, which I know sounds weird, but. You know, prior to the French Revolution, there was the three estates. There was the the noble, sorry, well, the clergy was the first estate. Mm -hmm. uh, the second estate was the nobility class. 
And the third estate was the, the rest of the peons like us, like everyone else was the th- like, and, and the third estate was by far the largest. That was the unwashed masses. Um, <laughs> and, and, right. The, but yeah. the first estate was, was these, you know, the, the scholars and the, then the priests who had moral superiority and the noble who had nobles who had the, uh, what they viewed as the kind of administrative superiority and the, and the education. And, you know, they were, they were the ones who could make the decisions and the rest of us could, you know, pick wheat or whatever that that was what we could do we could grow some wheat and and raise pigs or whatever the hell they (laughs) did in france um (laughs) and i think you know we can celebrate liberty and we can celebrate a political system that that's premised on this idea that no one should be in control but that what that does is disenfranchises the first two classes and they have to go somewhere um and i think they have gone somewhere They've gone into academia, media, and mm-hmm. politics, yeah. um, and we're in the same we're in the same place that pre well pre revolutionary France was in. We're in this place where, um, you know, there's a there's a pretense at liberty. There's a pretense that we're all equal. They will mouth those words, but they none of them actually believe it. Mm. And they are, they do have that elitist mentality that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and they view themselves, I mean, the World Economic Forum is a great example of this. Yep. They view themselves as um, the people with expertise, special ability, um, uh, a deeper moral understanding, uh, and and there's a noblesse oblige. They've got to take care of the rest of us uh, yep. by making sure we never own anything and we eat the bugs. They <laughs> eat the bugs. Yeah, exactly. And we see that across the board. It's those same people who, yeah, whether we talk about COVID or gender or race, it, it's trust the experts because you don't know what you're talking about. You can't challenge anything. You can't, you can't even bring up any evidence that's contrary to the narrative because that's not, it's, it's not goes, it doesn't go along with the anointed. It doesn't go uh-huh. along with the, with the elite who who know what they're talking about and who have our best interests at heart, Carter. They yeah. they care about yeah, us. <laughs> it's so arrogant, it's almost hard to fathom. Uh-huh. It is. <laughs> I mean, it's it's one of the things I find that makes Elon Musk fascinating to me because he's in their class. He by yeah. all means could be in the club with them and he does things that just piss the entire rest of them off all the time. Yeah. And it's he's great. like I the mean, black sheep of the family. Yeah. These they're like oh. right? and, but then they're like, oh but we can't get rid of him. But it, I mean it's just yeah. very fascinating to have somebody like that. Cause I don't I don't know that at different times in history when the class structure was set up in different ways, I don't know if you could have had somebody like him. Yeah, I don't know. He is an interesting character. But he really he's so is. he's so eccentric. He's his personality he is. is so 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 out there. I don't think any I don't think anybody really knows how to read him. And no. you know, I'm not sure he knows how to read himself, honestly. Like, I don't know. I, like I don't such I an find interesting him, person. I find him interesting, but I don't find him an enigma. Uh he's like an autistic engineer. Like I that makes total sense. They're all over Silicon Valley. He's just a billionaire. Yeah, I mean, like, it's like he doesn't. I I think people try and uh, I I think the detractors put him up on the pedestal and they're angry that he's not a savior. 
Yeah. Which he's not. Uh, he's just a dude trying to build stuff. Mm-hmm. And yeah. he's very pragmatic. And he doesn't have the, uh, I'll say, the social IQ to recognize. And I think he knows. I think he knows this about himself. He's never had really the social IQ to recognize what to say to fit in into virtue signal. So he gave up on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And right. he just wants to build rockets and colonize Mars. And people are stopping him. And he thinks people are dumb and in the way. And like, <laughs> why can't I share memes? And like, what the hell's going on? And like, I don't his, think he's like his Twitter he's not, feed, Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's. Not, I don't. He's not. He's not sitting down going like this is the philosophy that I think is the best thing, and I'm fighting it right. in this particular way. He's just like doing his thing and. And because he doesn't have the that that uh, because he doesn't have that the burden of a need to fit in, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. he says and does things that that you know <laughs> are outrageous, outrageous to his yeah. peers and yeah. make other people go, <laughs> oh, he's going to be our savior. He's going to be our savior. It's like, well, that's yeah. not his goal. He's not. He's not trying to be your savior. He just wants to share memes and build rockets. Like that's literally the guy sleeps on a a a, a mattress that's that like is is ripped and like now he's living in his office. Like the guy, yeah. like, like he's not <laughs> right. He, yeah, he's not. He's not Bezos. He's not what you imagine right. the billionaire is to be. He's. I, I think he's an authentic guy, which is why I like him. Uh-huh. Yeah, well, I, I I think Juliet's right in that sense. I think that that makes that's what makes him an enigma uh, is that he's he's in that class and he's just not a part of it. <laughs> like he's just not he's not he's not having it. But yeah, I mean, he, and he's not trying to control people and he's not trying to institute his you know his anointed philosophy or or whatever. Like like you said, he just wants to build stuff and uh-huh. and, and make memes. Like, but yeah. He, yeah, he's just a normal person. But yeah, I think that's what makes him makes him different, and I think that's why people go after him so so hard. Because uh-huh. I mean, somebody with that kind of platform and that kind of influence uh, that's not playing ball, that's not towing the line and not playing the game, uh, they're going to get attacks. And I don't have nearly that kind of uh, influence or platform, and uh-huh. I get attacked for not towing the racial line. So mm-hmm. I I can well, you're white adjacent, with that. I am white adjacent. <laughs> I told you internalized white supremacy. Okay. <laughs> but I mean I get it. I, I understand mm-hmm. what when you when you have a certain expectation to fit a certain ideological narrative, uh, and you don't do that, then the response is going to be animosity. And mm-hmm. I've seen it personally. So it makes sense that he gets it. Yeah. Right. You know, uh, it's almost two hours, and I don't want to. I don't want to end the show without you getting to talk about your book. So, can you tell people about the book you wrote and where they can find it? And we'll put links to it. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, the book is called "Raising Victims: The Pernicious Rise of Critical Race Theory," and it's going to be released February seventh of next year, which is coming okay. up quickly. I can't. I can't believe it. But uh, you can you can pre-order it now. Amazon, uh, Barnes and Noble, pretty much anywhere that you get books, uh, it should be available. But basically what the book is, it's, I mean, you can tell from the title that it's breaking down what critical race theory is um, because a lot of people don't really understand what it is uh-huh. or, or the argument is that like you try to push back against race centric policies or something. And people say, that's not critical race theory or they say, right. you don't know what critical race theory is. So I'm, I, I tried to give a sense of what critical race theory is from the founder's own words. And, um, 
how it's being implemented in our society, how, how it's <laughs> right, yeah, using their own words, how dare I? <laughs> but how You're it's not being supposed implemented, to do that, man. That's not, uh, <laughs> they don't, they don't like. That. They don't like that at all. Yeah, no. <laughs> lives of tit, lives of TikTok yeah. gets in trouble for that. <laughs> like, yes, yes. All she does is post stuff that they say. They're like, that's what, yeah, how dare you? <laughs> But, but yeah, it looks at how critical race theory is being implemented in our society uh, through diversity, equity, and inclusion programs, anti-racism. Ibram X. Kendi is in the book all over the place um, and really breaks apart the arguments and really uh, gives people a, a tool for pushing back against some of this stuff. So maybe things that they haven't thought about before. But my, my main goal is just to give an idea of what critical race theory actually is and how to fight against it. And then also to give... Uh, give an alternative, which uh, I always talk about as post-racialism or colorblindness, moving into a society where skin color is treated the same as our hair color or eye color, where, yeah, we see it, we, we notice our individual differences, but it doesn't matter. It's not going to impact how I see you or how I, how I interact with you as a person mm -hmm. or as an individual. So that's the book. And like I said, it comes out February 7th and you can pre-order it now. So I appreciate that. Cool. Yeah, we'll put links. I found it here on Amazon. We'll put links. Uh, All right. We'll put links there. And by the way, also before we go, uh, I I have a book. I have a. Have you read the book Illiberal Reformers? No, I haven't. By Thomas Leonard. No, no I no. highly recommend it because it's about um, the origins of progressivism. Okay. And they've always been administrative state policy wonks who want to control everything. Yeah. Uh, and. I wanted to get into that a little bit with schools, but we've run out of time. But we, we, we touched really quickly on this idea that the state controls your kids. And it's it's yeah. an inevitable result of of progressive ideology. And it's a I, it's a short, easy book to read. So, uh, OK, yeah, I'll check that out. a book recommendation. Yeah. I, no, I love it. Yeah, I'll check that out for sure. Well, uh, thanks for thanks for coming. Um, it was a pleasure to talk to you, as always. Remind people how they can find you and follow your work. Yeah, Informed Dissent is the name of the podcast. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, wherever you listen to podcasts. My website is leonidasjohnson.com, and you can find me on Twitter at Leonidas Johnson. So awesome. Well, thanks, man. I really appreciate yeah. it. it was, uh, I appreciate good Appreciate you guys. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. Uh -huh. All right. Take care. You too. Thanks, guys. Thanks for sticking around until the end. If you're new to Unsafe Space, check out our deep content library that includes discussions with everyone from James Lindsay to Brett Weinstein. And please consider helping to fund our work by visiting unsafespace.com donate. You can find us on a variety of social media platforms, and you can find a community of like-minded individuals on our Unsafe Space Discord server which is open to financial supporters at any level. We hope to see you there. Warning, this is an unsafe space. Dangerous ideas have been detected. It would be better for your health if you forgot what you just heard. That should be easy for someone of your intelligence. The following co-conspirators are hereby ordered to watch CNN. 
experts agree that 87,000 new tax collectors will make inflation feel like less of a problem. I think we can agree that the FBI's track record speaks for itself. If you think about it, only government-sanctioned experts should be allowed to express opinions. But don't. Think about it, I mean. That's not your job. Thinking has been scientifically proven to be less efficient than compliance. Science, scientific, and scientifically are registered trademarks of the World Economic Forum. Unauthorized use is prohibited. Computer voice courtesy. Never mind, that last line is fake news. Please disregard it and return to your safe space immediately. There will be cake.